All right, you got your Bibles? Let's go, 2 Samuel chapter 12, okay? It's been a while since we've been in our series in, uh, in, in 2 Samuel, and uh, just to get a, a grip on, and get a bearing on where we have been, what we've been talking about, um, maybe you're new to our church, we've just been, we just do this, we just teach through the Bible, we just go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and it's, you know, sometimes you hit some stuff that's hard, sometimes you're cruising through some things that are easy, sometimes it's like, Oh, wow, I just wish we could skip that conversation, but you don't get to because you're going through it. Well, we have come through this narrative about the kingship of King David, and we left off in the account where David has had an adulterous uh, relationship with Bathsheba. His kingdom was well-established by this time for whatever reason. Maybe he was a little bit older. He was, things were established. It was time to put his feet up on the couch, but when springtime came and the kings would go out to war and there would be battles. David, on, at this particular season, this particular year, decided that he would send out his army, that he personally would opt out, and he would stay at home in Jerusalem. And so it happened one day. You know the story. He's on the roof of his palace. There he observes a, a beautiful woman bathing, and he inquired who she was. He finds out that she is the wife of one of his soldiers, a man by the name of Uriah, who is away with the army. So David brings her, Bathsheba, to the palace where they committed adultery, and then she goes home, and nobody knows any different. It looks like he's gotten away with things, except this, that in due season, Bathsheba discovers she is expecting pregnant. And, uh, and so now David's got a problem on his hands, and so he attempts to cover it up, but the plan fails, and so David instructed his commander to put her husband, Uriah, in a place in the midst of the battle, position him where he will be killed, and it happened accordingly. And so David was responsible for plotting and implementing, premeditating Uriah's murder. So then, you know, things go on. Bathsheba goes through her time of mourning, and when it was over, David brings her to the palace. He marries her. She bears him a son, and it appears that the man whom the scripture calls the man after God's own heart. Isn't this amazing to us? These actions, adultery, murder, cover-up, lying, the man called the man after God's own heart appears to have gotten away with it all. But chapter 11 closes with these words. This is where we left off. It's been four weeks, actually, since we've been in 2 Samuel. Christmas and all that stuff. It says this, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Man, what more do you need to say right there? It's worth underlining in your Bible. Probably six months have gone by. You have to sometimes think about this. Imagine these things in the Scripture. Like six months has gone by probably since the death of Uriah. The baby's been born. And David thought that he had gotten away with it, at least on the outside in terms of everyone else's perception and what people were seeing. It looked like everything was okay in the kingdom. But Psalm 32 tells us something very different because in Psalm 32, David expresses what was going on. Two Psalms he does this, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. What was going on in his heart before he had experienced the forgiveness of God. And it tells us, that psalm tells us, David tells us in that psalm, that his unconfessed sin, the fact that he was hiding it, 
was literally killing him on the inside. It was like his bones were rotting inside of him. Holding things together on the outside, meanwhile, sin is rotting his bones on the inside. We all know what that's like, right? We all know what that experience is like when we've got to get things together on the outside, but we're falling apart on the inside. Well, that's David. And that's the nature of sin, hidden sin, hidden sin. He says, my bones were rotting. It's like hidden sin brings death. Sin brings death and hidden sin brings death to the inside. And so this thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And so chapter 12, verse 1, it tells us this. Just going to read the first sentence. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, I love this. Nathan and David, they've got a history together. If you've been with us, you know that. Nathan had... uh, been David's friend. Nathan had been, uh, Nathan was a prophet and he was delivering to King David messages from the Lord. It was Nathan who had delivered the message to David in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and 7 about the building of the temple. Remember, David had it in his heart to build a temple unto the glory of God. And Nathan told him, You go ahead and do it if God's put this desire in your heart. And then that night, the Lord spoke to Nathan and the Lord said, Nathan, David's desire is good, but he's got blood on his hands. He's not going to be the man to do it. His son is going to build the temple. And and Nathan brought this message to King David. And not only did he bring this message, he was the one who brought the message of the promised covenant between the Lord and David, that David's descendant would always sit eternally on the throne uh, of Israel. And so here's this situation. Nathan now comes into it. Him and David have this history. God's displeased with David, but God didn't do this. I love this about the Lord. God didn't send David's enemy to talk to him about his sin. He sent his friend. He sent a man with whom David discussed the things of God. A man who was, uh, a man who loved the word of God. A man who was, Uh, a friend of David, and a man with whom David and and Nathan shared their friendship, Uh, a huge part of it was discussing the things of God. And Nathan brings God's word to correct David. And I would just say this to you, you know, whenever God does this for you, when God sends his word to bring correction into your life, do you know what he'll do? He'll send a friend. He'll send a friend. He won't send your enemy. He won't won't send someone who hates your guts, you know, just to rub it your face in it a little more. He'll send someone who loves you. He'll send someone who has a heart for you. And that's who Nathan was, someone who loved David and had a heart for him. So it says this again in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So Nathan comes to David. He tells him this story about this rich man 
who took the one and only lamb from a, a poor man in order to feed a guest, and, and he took this lamb and he killed it. Now, verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So David hears this story. This is what we read from Nathan. His anger flares up. Uh, I, this is a great story because David had been a shepherd himself. We know this. He attended lambs and cared for sheep. So to hear about the theft of a lamb, whoa, man, you got the shepherd's heart here. This was speaking his language. And so David says this, the, the rich man should repay four lambs to the poor man. That was the proper act of restitution. That's law. That's biblical law amongst the Jewish people that the theft of a lamb was to be repaid fourfold. Uh, proper restitution. But what's interesting here is that David didn't stop there. I don't know if you saw this. And David says, he says this, that man should die for his action. He should die. Now, now when, I, when I read that, you know, over the years I've been thinking about this, I read this and I'm like, oh yeah, it's just, you know, that's just words coming out of his mouth. But I, I, I've changed my heart on this as I've been reading this text. I actually think, the more I think about this, I think that we can go so far to say that David not only demanded fourfold restitution, but he condemned this man to death. Which is way over the top. Not God's heart, not God's word. Way over the top. And it's like, it's amazing how he could react to someone like that. And you know what? Here's the thing about it. You and I do the same thing. Often we react to other people and it's like way over the top. Especially, here, here's the key. Especially when we are packing the guilt of our own sin, we can be very harsh with others. And what's amazing is that if we talk, you know, David's sin with, with Bathsheba, the law instructed that a man and a woman who committed adultery, the punishment for that was that they were to be put to death. Or the punishment in Israel for premeditated murder was capital punishment. David himself was guilty before the Lord of a double offense. He was the one who deserved to die. And he packed that hidden knowledge buried in his own heart that's why he's over the top in this reaction to this man. You know, one time when we turn to the New Testament, we read this, that the, that the teachers of the law brought to Jesus a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And they said this, what should be done with her, Jesus? You know what the law demands? She should be stoned to death. And Jesus, that, that famous story, we love this story in scripture. The Bible tells us that he, he knelt down and he began to, Right with his finger in the sand, and it's like, you know, we're only going to get, when we get to heaven, we're going to find out what he wrote. Maybe he was writing Ten Commandments. Maybe he was writing the names of all the adulterers that were standing in front of him. Who knows what he was writing in that sand, but uh, I look forward to it. Maybe they saw their names, and then they said, I'm out of here. I don't know, whatever it was, but Jesus said this. He said, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And one by one, from the oldest to the youngest men, they turned and walked away until Jesus was left alone standing there. You don't even think about that statement that we read. Look, this isn't about throwing stones. I'm not interested in throwing stones. I'm with, I am a sinner condemned 
to death and eternal separation apart from God unless the Lord Jesus saves me and by his grace, he has. He has. Jesus says, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And what's amazing about that story is this. If there was one without sin, it's the one who was left standing there with the woman, Jesus. If there is one who could have thrown the first stone, it was Jesus. But what did Jesus say to her? Where are your accusers? Are they all gone? Neither then do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus was merciful because he himself was free from sin. David, in this account, is not free from sin. When he heard Nathan's story, he was angry. And he was unguarded as his mouth spewed the, uh, the, the, the anger and the, the condemning this man to death. And he was unguarded for what was next because Nathan was about to bring out the word of God, unguarded for the sword of the Spirit. It's about to pierce his heart. Verse 7, again, look at this. Nathan said, you are the man. I love this. That is a great line. In Scripture, you should, like, you should underline that, and then you should draw a line into the, mar- into the margin, and you should say, yeah, and it's talking about you. <laughs> Me. I'm the man. <laughs> Before God, you are the man. You are the woman. We are the ones guilty of sin. And, and for David, it was Nathan who brought this message and the quick thrust of the sword into David's heart, the word of God, like the sword that it is, like the mirror that it is exposing sin. David, for the first time in months, saw himself in the mirror of God's word. His sin was known. Verse seven again, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if this were too little, I would, have, I would add to you as much and more. This is amazing from the Lord. David, you're the man. I did this for you. I gave to you, I did this, I did this, I did this. The Lord had given David everything that he had. And the Lord had said this, said this, you're Nathan. If that wasn't enough, I would have given you more. Do you know why? Because as we've seen through this series in Samuel, not only had David, as the scriptures say, David had a heart set on the Lord, but we know this, the Lord had set his heart on David. God had chosen him. The Lord had set his heart and the Lord said, I would give you more if it was necessary. Verse nine, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. David had done two things that we read here. Two things. It says this, that he despised the, the word of the Lord. Actually, let me give them to you this way. Two things. You might want to write them down if you're taking notes. Number one, he had forgotten the goodness of God. Number two, he had despised the word of the Lord. Forgotten the goodness of God and despised the word of the Lord. You know, if we turn to the law of God, 
you know, coveting, adultery, bearing false witness, murder. David had broken four of the Ten Commandments, at least. And David was seduced by Bathsheba's beauty, but the reason why he was seduced, this is important to understanding sin and the nature of sin. I want to help us with that this morning. David was seduced by Bathsheba's beauty because he was no longer captivated by God's beauty. And that's the pattern for all sin. That's how sin starts. That's how sin operates. Sin always has to do with your relationship to God. Sin starts with us dismissing God. Willful forgetting, that's what I would call it. You begin to feel dissatisfied with what God has given you. David, I gave you all this. I would have given you more if it was necessary. You begin to feel dissatisfied with what God has given you. You doubt his goodness towards you. This is what's happening in the depths of our hearts when we're dealing with issues of sin. You doubt the goodness of God towards you. Sin attaches to the heart in an attitude. It might be unspoken, but it communicates this. Man, God's withholding something from me. There's something good out there that I'm not getting to participate in and God is holding back on me and we doubt the goodness of God. Sin is a search for life. It involves you thinking that God is not enough. It involves you treating your relationship with God like it's not life-giving. David forgot the goodness of God. And Nathan says, and you despise the word of the Lord. David was not uninformed about God's word. He knew the law of God. He set aside the law of God and he acted in rebellion to God's instruction. This was not a simple mistake. It was a despising of the word of the Lord. So, you know, I would just say this to you and I. If you've got an area of sin that you're wrestling with in your life, and we all do, and you're trying to get victory, you're fighting for victory, and you wonder, man, how am I going to win this one? Look, I would just say to this, say to you this, the way to deal with it is not to suppress it, not to push it down or to push it away and say, you know, next time I'll do better. I'll get victory next time. The key is this, increase your delight in the Lord. Increase your delight in the Lord so that you love him more than you love sin. Be captivated by the beauty and the goodness of God. And when that happens, sin loses its appeal. This is the key to victory over sin, church. Love God more than sin. His word says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. It's not that you don't have to love sin less. You have to learn to love Jesus more. And so sin always involves two things. Forgetting God's goodness and despising his word. And David realized this. That though he had sinned against Uriah, that though he had sinned with Bathsheba, the greatest sin was against God. He talks about it in the 51st Psalm. Psalm, Psalm 54 verse 1, or sorry, 51 verse 4. I want to read it to you. I think it's on the screen. It says this. This is the words of David. When he's confessing and making his heart, creating, asking God to create in him a clean heart, he says this. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done evil in your sight. 
Now I read that and I think, well, did David just sin against the Lord? And the answer is no. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Joab demanding these things from him. He sinned against Bathsheba. I think he sinned against Uriah's family. He sinned against Bathsheba's family. You know, what about her parents? What about her family? What about Uriah's family? David had done a very disgraceful thing, but David said this to the Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned and done evil in your sight. I mean, comparatively, the sin against the Lord was the greatest sin, the most significant. And it was at the root of everything that transpired. It was shameful to everyone else, absolutely, but it was a sin against God who had taken David from the shepherd's field and made him king over his people Israel. You know, I think about David and what was happening in his own heart. And, and I think probably there was a time when David's guilt was directed towards people. You know, he felt bad about what he had done to Uriah. He felt bad when Bathsheba's parents came around or whatever it was. But, but what had to happen, the, the word of God from Nathan had to direct David so that David's guilt was directed and turned towards the Lord so that he would repent. He had sinned against God. And that's the nature of all sin. That is the nature of all sin. Now, verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. You know, we're going to see this as we continue on in this series from here on in. David, in his life, in his palace, in his family, they are now going to go from problem to problem, trouble to trouble to trouble. It's, and it, and it's, it's crazy. See, David brought the sword into the house of Uriah. And so the Lord says, then David, I have to bring the sword into your own house. The son born to Bathsheba will die. Three of David's other sons will die. His daughter will be raped. His son will try to take his kingdom. Absalom, his son, will defile his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. This is the fruit of sin. And what's crazy about this is, is we're about to read this, that God has forgiven David. God has forgiven him. God forgives sin. Are you thankful for that? God forgives our sin. But sin still has earthly consequences. God forgives, but for David, there's going to be brokenness. There's going to be humiliation. He had Uriah slain, and the Lord says, the fruit of this is that the sword will not leave your own house, David, your own family. This is the nature of sin. Yes, God forgives, but there is inherent in sin consequence. Yes, God forgives, but there is a cost attached. We never get away with sin. So look at verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Again, this is important, church. It's good for us to see this. David doesn't defend himself. He didn't blame Bathsheba. He didn't make excuses. That's the normal 
normal human reaction. You know, I think about back to the garden, Adam and Eve, when they had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the Lord confronted them, Adam blamed Eve. That woman, you know, you gave her to me, Lord, and look what happened. And the Lord turned to Eve and Eve, she blames the serpent. Quiet there, Adam. <laughs> His name really is Adam, that guy that was chirping around her. David owned it. <laughs> he owned it. He didn't blame someone else. He didn't pass it on at this point in time. He said this, I have sinned against the Lord, against you and you alone, Lord. Look at verse 13 again. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. We know this. What does the Bible say the wages of sin is? It's death. But the Bible also tells us that the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And the word of God teaches us this. This is the message of the gospel, that if we confess our sin, God is faithful and he is just and he will forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. Church, that's why King Jesus came, isn't it? To save us. That is the message of the gospel that Jesus would set us free from sin's power, sin's punishment, and the cost attached to it, which is death, eternal separation from God. David said, I've sinned. And the prophet said, I know, but the Lord's forgiven you. That is the power of the gospel that's available to you and I. Sin can be fully forgiven in Christ Jesus. And what an amazing thing it is to be washed of the guilt and the condemnation and the power of sin. But sin has, still has repercussions. Doesn't mean that God hasn't forgiven. Sin just has inherent to it repercussions. And the prophet says the child, the one born to Bathsheba, is going to die. I, I just think this, what a, what a high price for a few minutes of passion. Verse 15. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became sick. I, it's interesting as you read this that Bathsheba here is still called Uriah's wife. Did you see that? Then Nathan went to his house and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife had born to David and she became sick. What's really cool about this chapter is this, is that the end, at the end of this chapter or the end of this account, she'll be called David's wife. Something changes. I always wonder when that happens with the Lord. Don't you wonder that? Like, oh Lord, I made this mess and it's like disaster. I've like shipwrecked this or I've done that and I bring it to you and it's like, at what point does the Lord just turn it and, and now it's something good that he's redeeming? <laughs> he does it. It's who he is. It's who his, what his nature is. And Yes, this was Uriah's wife, but the Lord had forgiven. There was consequence. There was repercussions. But God was going to redeem this. Verse 16. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted. And went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, 
nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Verse 20. Then David rose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. You know, I read that, I think this, I'm like, wow, you you ever prayed for healing and then someone doesn't get healed? We believe in healing, right? Like, we totally believe in that. We believe in the work of the atonement, the work of the cross, and the power of God to heal. When there is sickness in our church, man, I would tell you this, call the elders and ask us to lay hands on you. We'll pray for you. We'll pray for healing. We want to pray for healing. There is divine healing. But I think this, as I read this, There's also divine sickness. We don't like to talk about this sometimes in the church. You know, it didn't matter. What we read here is it didn't matter how much David prayed. It didn't matter how much he fasted. It wasn't the will of God that this child recover from sickness. And sometimes it's hard for us to comprehend that. And I would just say this, that trust is the thing that calms the questioning. Pray, yes. Fast, yes. Does God heal? Yes, he does. Absolutely, God heals. But there is a time when you fast and you pray and you ask and it doesn't come to pass. And in those times, we have to cling to the promise, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. You know where I learned that? Oh, I'm glad my wife's not in here. I learned that from my (laughs) father-in-law. I say that I'm glad my wife's not in here because I was worried what if I told the story. I didn't tell her I was going to tell it, so. I learned that from Lisa's dad, my father-in-law, who never actually got to be my father-in-law because he died before we were married. He, He died when we were dating. And he loved Jesus. We would gather around him and we would pray and lay hands on him. I remember I was like 20, 21, all my Bible college friends, we were all together. There was about 20 of us. We were at Lisa's parents' house and he was sick in his bed and we went into the bedroom and we laid hands on him and we prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. We never had any doubt about God's ability to heal. Lisa's dad never had any doubt about God's ability to heal him. We prayed. But one day he told me this. He said, the Lord has told me that his grace is sufficient for me. And guess what? He went home to be with Jesus. 
David did it all right, church. But it wasn't the Lord's will. The child died. And his servants questioned him. When the child was sick, you sought God. And now he's dead. You rise and you eat food. And David said this, I'm going to him, but I won't bring him back. I think this is the key right here. See, when you pray and healing doesn't happen, David recognized the reality of eternity. The child's gone, but I'm going to him. He won't be coming back to me. In other words, I'm going to see my child again. I have the hope of eternity. That's the, that's the hope in all sickness. My dear friend, Pastor Brent Smith, Riverside Calvary Chapel, so many of you know him yesterday. His 54-year-old brother went home to be with Jesus. Brain tumors. They were treating him in December. Everything looked so good. They had a great Christmas together, and then he went into the hospital just the other day, and they said he's got two days. Gone. Beautiful man who loved Jesus. Three grown Children who love Jesus. I said, I'm sorry, Brent. He said, I'm going to see my brother again. Eternity matters. Salvation matters. It is the comfort in the midst of questions that we can't answer when we wonder and we've lost family members or lost someone that we love. I like this because I think it tells us something awesome about the death of children when a child dies before the age of accountability. They go into the presence of the Lord. That's great hope for children, or for parents that have lost children. So let's read on. Verse 24, it says this. When David comforted his wife, there it is right there, David's wife. When David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. And sent a message by Nathan the prophet. Here comes Nathan again, David's friend. Sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Nathan was told, go and tell David, David, the Lord wants you to know he loves that boy. God loves what is coming out of this wreckage. David, you've confessed your sin, but Uriah's wife is now your wife, and I have healed, and I have forgiven, and I will redeem, and I will restore, and I love your child. He is the beloved of the Lord. That's what the name Jedidiah means. Solomon means peaceful. I like that. David and Bathsheba, they named this son peaceful. That in the midst of all of this disaster, God had worked and was restoring. He said, wow, there's peace. And then Nathan comes and Nathan says, give that boy another name from the Lord, Jedidiah, because he is the beloved of God. He was a gift from God to David and Bathsheba. It's amazing to me. Because I, I read this account and you think, well, the Lord could have said, you know, with regards to that relationship with Bathsheba, look at David, I'm not honoring it. Nothing good will ever come from it. Nothing, David, ever. But that's not what the Lord did. Because the God that we serve is a God of second chances, amen? David repented. He was, you know, chastened by the Lord. He was forgiven, and God blessed the relationship, and Solomon was born, and we know this, Solomon is going to become the next king. You know, imagine the future king of Israel coming forth from this situation. Church, that is the grace of God at work. And that's what God wants to do for you and I. So I'd say this, you know, take hope. There is hope. 
You know, when you confess your sin and turn to the Lord and you don't make excuses for the past or cast blame, you just own it and you bring it to God and you say, Lord, I'm just trusting in the work of Jesus. I'm asking you to forgive me. Purify me from this unrighteousness. I'll tell you this. The Lord will bring beauty out of your ashes. What ashes do you have? Jesus wants to bring forth beauty from those things. Now, verse 26 tells us this. We'll read here to the end. Now, Joab fought against Rabbah. This is the very city where Uriah was killed, okay? Now, Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold. That's 75 pounds, you guys. This is a 75-pound crown. Okay? And he took the crown from the king of the... Sorry, and he took, verse 30, he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and it was a, a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. Talk about a headache. We're in a crown. And he brought, 75 pounds, and he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount, and he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes, and he made them toil at brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Now to me, as this chapter winds up, this is the amazing part. Again, this is the grace of God. This is the favor of God. Because God, in the midst of David's sin, murder, adultery, cover-up, lying, David was confronted. He confessed his sin. And the Lord didn't Rub David's face in it. Yes, there were consequences, absolutely, but Solomon was born. God bless Solomon. And not only that, the Lord said, I'm not done with you, David. Rabbah is captured. This is the city that was used to slay Uriah. You guys, this is the grace of God at work here. This is like, God, you know, if it was me, I'd say, okay, David, you lose. Your army loses. All your men are dying. You're never going to get that city, but that's not what God does. God gives him victory even in the place where he had premeditated sin. Planned and premeditated sin. God says, I give you that territory. I give you that city. This is amazing. Amazing. And so I, I got just an application for you this morning. I'm going to give you four, four things twice, okay? Four steps to death. This is kind of, we haven't been in this series in 2 Samuel for a while. So this is kind of going back to chapter 11 because originally I was going to do chapter 11 and 12 as one teaching, but here's four steps to death from chapter 11. Number one, it's going to be on the screen, neglecting our duty. Remember what David did? He stayed at home when he should have been going off to war. Number two, indulging our eyes. Man, when he saw that Bathsheba girl bathing on the roof, he should have turned his eyes, right? Turned his eyes. Number three, Step to death, third step to death, betraying our spouse. Number four, hiding our sin. But here's the steps to freedom. Number one, this is what Nathan did for David. Exposed by the word of God. 
Number two, he was helped by God's people. This is someone who loved him. He came to him and he sought to help him. And then when David repented, he was welcomed by God's grace. God said, okay, I forgive. And not only will I forgive, I am going to pour out upon you unmerited favor, David. Solomon will be born. I'll give you victory in these places. And then David was restored to God's service. I want to live in freedom, don't you? Freedom from sin. There is freedom. The Word of God tells us this, that he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And that is the promise to those who put their trust in Jesus, who come to him, and who recognize the work of the cross, that Jesus came and died on the cross for the sin of mankind. He was buried and put in a grave. Three days later, he rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven. He is the crucified, uh, buried, risen, ascended king of the universe, King Jesus. And in him, there is forgiveness. There is hope. Because of Jesus, Jesus bore in his body our sin and there is forgiveness when we come to him. We have to come to him. We have to bring it to him. Look at, do you need freedom this morning? Jesus is the answer. Let the word of God expose your heart. Let us help you. We love you. Repent of your sin. Be welcomed by God's grace and restored to God's service. Let's pray this morning. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Would you guys stand with me? Jesus, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, that all of the word from Genesis to Revelation, it's all pointing us to you. You're at the center. Your story. It's about you. And it's about us coming to you in repentance and faith. And so Jesus is... As David prayed in the Psalms, Lord, would you search our hearts and see if there be any wicked way in us? Lord, we want to expose it tonight, this morning. We want, we want you to for, forgive us, Jesus. We ask Jesus again that if there are areas of sin in our life that need to be washed in the blood of Christ, that you would forgive us. Lord, we own it. We don't cast blame. We don't point the finger at other people. It's not a matter of measuring ourselves against our neighbor, against our spouse, or against some friend. We're held in the balances against you, Jesus. And we confess that we fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus, we're thankful when we trust you, we repent of sin and put our faith in you and confess you as Lord. You forgive us our sin. You purify us from all unrighteousness. You lead us, Jesus, towards a hope and a future. Death has no hold on us. You set us free from fear. You fulfill the law in us perfectly. Jesus, we love you because you are the Savior of the world, the Christ, the Lord. Jesus, this morning, I pray that we would drink deep from the well of grace. Drink deep from the well of forgiveness. Drink deep of you, Jesus, because you are living water and from you flow springs of living water. Would you fill us this morning, Lord? Fill us with your spirit as you cleanse us by your power. God, strengthen your people today, Lord. I just pray. If there are those, God, packing the burden and the guilt and the condemnation of sin, Jesus, that it would wash away with your presence this morning. 
I thank you, Jesus, you're the one who gives a peace that surpasses all understanding, that guards our hearts and guards our minds. And to you we run, Lord. We confess, God, we love sin more than we loved you. And we ask you to forgive us. Can we take refuge in you this morning, Jesus? Safe harbor. Your home, Lord. We abide. We abide in the vine. Because you give life, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name.